On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Mark Hester of Prova Cycles in Fairfield, Australia. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone for about an hour and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. We hear their story about how they got started, how they got to where they are, how they learned what they know, why they chose the path that they chose. And I try to bring out some of the the key elements of, you know, like what they value, what they think is cool. We like, you know, I like to talk about process and technical things and, and try to have a good time. And so this week, my guest is Mark Hester of Provacite. Uh, he's in Fairfield, Australia, which I believe is like right in and around Melbourne or Mel- Melbourne, or <laughs> I don't know how the folks there would say it locally. Um, I'm trying here. Anyhow, yeah, so his his bikes are remarkable. I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, he does uh, mostly stainless steel and titanium. I think it's moving more toward titanium now with uh, some composites worked in as well. Uh, Mark has a background in engineering and like motorsports and automotive related things. And so, um, you know, he, he took a frame building course in 2015 at the Bicycle Academy in the UK. And uh, he's been building bikes since then. And uh, if, you know, when I look at his work, it's it's hard for me to believe that he's only been doing this since 2015 because uh, his work is remarkable. It's, it's, he's very talented. He's very technical about the process. So, you know, he, he incorporates um, lots of CAD designed stuff, 3D printed components in stainless steel and in titanium. Uh, you know, the composites work, he did that earlier in his career and in university, he did a lot of work with composites. And I think he's headed in a direction where he's going to do more of that. Uh, His welds are just impeccable, you know, incredible stuff. So anyway, I just really wanted to talk to him because I think he's somebody who's pushing uh, the technology of, of, you know, the small handmade bike more than or as much as uh, almost any other builder. So um, I'm really inspired by his work. I think it's uh, really exceptional stuff. And uh, it was a treat to get him on the show. Where I cut into the interview here, I had asked him to give the backstory on, you know, going to university for engineering and some of the experiences that he had as a young person, you know, racing uh, in motorsports and and doing some uh, technical, you know, fabricating and different things like that. So uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I studied in 2000, so quite a while ago now. Mm-hmm. I got into engineering through kind of growing up in workshops. So my dad used to used to build custom cars and race, maintain race cars, like engine building, that sort of thing. And my granddad was also an engineer, and that kind of like growing up was always a kind of aspirational thing to do. I saw that as a kind of a pretty interesting career path, always just loved kind of designing and drawing and um, how things worked. I mean, like we, we grew up next to a train line um, in Adelaide here in Australia and a, the steam train used to come past every weekend and they had a turntable in the town that we lived in and like you'd see the steam train come up and decouple and then go to the turnaround and see this huge machine working. It was kind of, and I like just, yeah, I suppose fascinated with how things worked from quite a young age and pretty lucky that dad worked from home so i got to kind of spend like weekends pretty much every night <laughs> avoiding study in the workshop <laughs> um <laughs> working with him um i think yeah like yeah feel very lucky to have that experience and he was always willing to certainly not i don't know if parenting's changed now but certainly not overly worried about kids being <laughs> playing with tools and stuff uh-huh. <laughs> um uh, I mean, yeah, it's cool to see him doing that with our little niece now as well. So, um, yeah, she's got good potential to be an engineer as well, I reckon. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, so I grew up in that environment and, like, yeah, around cars and racing. Like, we used to travel to um, to racetracks all the time. And I was very lucky that I was able to race carts from a very young age. So I'd, I learned to, ra- to drive when I was five years old. And then I raced kind of semi-professionally for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, right up until kind of university days, I suppose, when um, when I moved out of home and no longer had to, had to pay for my own baked beans rather than having mum cooking dinner. <laughs> um, so that was, I mean, that was kind of, yeah, those early days where you kind of, I mean, carts are relatively simple objects, but it's still quite an interesting machine 
tearing them down, rebuilding them. The surface table I have in the workshop now is actually from those days when I used to race. So Dad found this. Um, it was made in Melbourne in the 50s, so like a quite a large cast iron and then surface ground um, table for doing like alignment of the cart shades. So like, well, yeah, I suppose that was interesting, like attention to detail and like delving into things. That's yeah, instilled in me from quite a young age, like trying to kind of look at um, what popular people call marginal gains now, but like trying to <laughs> like find little bits, little bits here and there in, in racing and kind of, yeah, grew up in that, that atmosphere, I suppose. And bikes were a part of life back then, but not a huge. Yeah, I, like I didn't get to race. I had mates that raced BMX, and so I got to ride their bikes. And I did I did ride when I was racing carts a lot. I did ride the mountain bike for fitness reasons, but not from a kind of uh, hobby aspect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, grew up in that environment, got to use, like, milling machines and grinders and just, yeah, kind of make stuff. I remember, like, very young, I had a one of Dad's friends gave me this old wooden RC speedboat that had a an, a water-cooled nitro engine and, a, like, the water cooling had corroded. So I got Dad to weld a bit of aluminium to the head and then I machined Whoa, cool. uh, cooling, cooling fins back into the head, got it running and then, had, yeah, used to take the bodyboard to the lake and go and rescue out in the middle of the lake. And so kind of, yeah, I suppose very lucky in terms of the, yeah, I feel quite privileged to grow up in that environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I worked as a kind of like in late school kind of study was like not too hard, but like not my major passion. Like I wasn't massively into school and study, but did pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working as a mechanic as well, so like, I used to work at a Porsche workshop on race, race cars and stuff on like school holidays and so, like, pulling engine pulling engines out of cars and kind of it would have been an easy route to go down the kind of being becoming a mechanic like doing a trade. Um, I think Dad saw that as like he knew how hard that was physically, yeah, and kind of convinced me to keep studying and, and <laughs> try hard at school. Would and you also, say? Like, seeing, yeah. Would you say as a younger person that you were specifically interested in motorsports and you loved like oh, the, the thrill like of, to... of driving motorized yeah. things or, but it was yeah. also definitely the mechanical nature of them was, was interesting to you, uh, to study. It was, it was both. I, I think both, like definitely both. Like at, towards the end of my racing, I was doing like rebuilding my own engines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing all, all that kind of like all the prep work and things as a teenager. So but then I also just loved, I loved going fast and taking risks. Yeah. So kind of, um, and growing up racing carts was kind of like, yeah, I suppose naively like the dream was to become a professional driver. And some of my, a lot of my peers from back then are actually wow. um, professional drivers here in, in Australia now um, and some overseas. But, and I ended up, um, I ended up using those skills later on as an engineer, but, um, not as a race, not not in racing, but as in test driving. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a reason why I love mountain biking is that you kind of it, it feels like you're pushing yourself past some comfortable zone that you're living in, mm-hmm. and you just keep keep trying to ride something a little bit harder. And but then yeah, also obviously from the mechanical aspect, um, yeah, it was always always fascinating. That kind of led me into yeah. So I went to uni. Um, I kind of I found initially a little bit tough because it was so generic like the first little while of, of the mechanical engineering course is like just a lot of like broad subjects and not overly practical like I think I'm definitely more of a practical engineer rather than a like numbers person mm-hmm. um, and then I was I got like a I mean, so many things in life are just like one little thing that changes the path forever. But uh, I was in second year um, and like one of my mates at uni said, oh, there's this thing at GM Holden. So Holden was a manufacturer here in Australia until um, they shut down a few years ago. And that mm-hmm. was like one of the biggest biggest kind of um, places for engineers to go and work really in Victoria. He said, oh, they do this co-op here where you can go and basically work as a as a engineering student for a year and they pay you and 
Um, and I just, like, it was that night it closed and I applied for it and then ended up getting that. So I moved cities. So that's like yeah, an eight hour drive. So I moved over here when I was 18 mm-hmm. and ended up really enjoying living here. So I swapped to a university here in Melbourne. Um, and then that university was much more practical and it had some really cool stuff going on. So it was just, um, that was a pretty important element to, um, to sort of growing up as, yeah, um, and becoming an engineer. So they had uh, quite a, I'm not sure if you've heard of former SAE, which is like a, a university-based competition where you build a little open-wheel race car and then compete in it in a bunch of events. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't heard um, of that. Yeah, okay. So it's, it, it started in, started by the SAE. So Society of Automotive Engineers in America quite some time ago, and then it became global around about 2000. So there's events in Europe and now Australia, and there's still the main event in in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So the university I went to was quite heavily involved in that, and then like with yeah, obviously with <laughs> motorsport interest, it was kind of very um, yeah something that I found quite exciting and got quite heavily involved in that. Um, and ended up doing my final year thesis on building a carbon, like a composite monocoque chassis, um, which was the first chassis made in Australia using um, like pre-preg honeycomb core cured in an autoclave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that became, I mean, that had to be my first job um, in motorsport here in Australia. So, yeah, the, the kind of what I learned from doing that. Yeah. I uh, got a job that- with the local local team doing composite stuff after that but um and that's, i learned so much through that kind of both from a team aspects so you've got all this like a team of student engineers trying to work together creating a budget like the budgets were kind of like 50 to 100 grand a year back then to build a car source all the parts and you've got this kind of team structure where there's like chief engineers and team leaders and people in charge of all these bits so it's kind of i think from a for a practical engineer that was kind of I probably wouldn't have finished university if it wasn't for that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's it's cool that you got all that experience while you're in college. Because, um, you know, composites are, I don't know, it's pretty cool. Like, a, I, I don't see that a ton in your bikes, um, which I guess is something that I would like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about. Like, you know, you, you've used composites a lot and composites, uh, you know, carbon fiber is a very popular material for bike frames for a lot of reasons. It has a lot of strengths. Um uh, you know, physically, but also in terms of its characteristics, or it has strengths. Uh, you know, what was it when you were? I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We'll have to return the it's narrative. Fine. But like, yes, okay. You know, you're you're getting into bikes, and you decide you want to make bikes. Why don't you just go straight to composites instead? You know, you're looking at like stainless and titanium and these materials. Um, so I do use. I, I make the carbon tube in one of my bikes. I make mm-hmm. in house for each bike. So yeah, like. A, Using composites a little bit, but yeah, obviously not as massively. And it's a pretty simple part compared to mm-hmm. other stuff that I've been involved with in the past. I think, um, yeah, like we can talk about it more later. But like the my path into actually making bikes was through Philip Ray's steel bikes in nice. England. And I think um, if I tried to start a business doing composite bikes the way I would want to do a composite bike, I would still be making the first. <laughs> yeah like i think it's so important like even if i'd started doing tig world bikes and like started off doing titanium bikes like i feel like i would not be i wouldn't have been able to try so many different things and different geometry and kind of get bikes out there testing yeah um while you're focusing on because like maybe initially i wasn't planning on it being a business but certainly there was a point where i started to focus on that element and um yeah like there's it's iterative in terms of like what what you spend time on like initially you spend time and like just putting a brake mount on a bike is the hardest thing in the world and then (laughs) like figuring out how to do your taxes and the hardest thing in the world and it's kind of like um you just keep making these little steps and then you can kind of like a year and a half ago, I got comfortable enough with tick welding, steel and stainless steel bikes that I then took the plunge into titanium, which I'm now doing like the next year is kind of looking like mostly titanium bikes. So it's kind of, and I couldn't envision doing that five years ago. Yeah. Um, so so it's the same with composites. Like I'm not <clears> saying 
Yeah. In spite oh, of being I comfortable. Say it'll be a composite bike in my future. <laughs> yeah. In spite of being very comfortable with composites, uh, generally from your background, there's so many challenges that come with building bikes and building custom bikes for unique individuals and doing them in a business context. There's like so many other hurdles that for you to design like the molds and all the engineering to make a great composite bike to launch with, you would be a ma- yeah. I understand that. Yeah, I guess like that. It'd be <laughs> yeah. a massive project, and you wouldn't have a whole lot of uh, like a. I think Carl Strong, when I had him on the show, called it a data pool. You wouldn't have like a huge body of experience building bikes for people yeah. when you started that. So like that makes yeah. a lot of sense practically to start at a place that's a little more accessible, so you can get that momentum. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's definitely um, really important. Like you, were, like one of your talking points was about advice for other people trying to do this and it's kind of really kind of um not biting off too much to start with is yeah pretty pretty crucial yeah and yet as you show i mean you can do incredibly ambitious things um it's not like there's any limit to what you can do but uh yeah maybe not biting off too much in one in one chunk (laughs) yeah like you could definitely like to start with you could have designed a bunch of molds made one mountain bike but then, like, I found it so useful early on to build bikes with all different geometries and sort of try and, for me, understand what different bikes work on different trains. So when you're talking to the customer, you go, like, particularly, I've been lucky enough to ride mountain bike in quite a few places. So you're kind of talking to them about the trails they're going to use it on, and then you kind of got, you've already got a picture in your mind about, well, I know that this particular bike ran into a limitation in that trail. or um, And to be able to, yeah, to be able to do that early on, just building um, Philibro's steel bikes was quite quite important. Yeah. All right. So, so I kind of interrupted your timeline, but um, yes, sir. So you were talking about how you were, you know, doing this automotive motorsports stuff, and you're in university, and you had this project to do the carbon fiber chassis for this car. Yeah. And uh, and you did, and that was cool. That you said that led to your first job after university, right? Yeah. So I got. Um, it was like on, like in the Christmas holidays, so I got graduated in December and then I'm not sure how it happened, but, um, so ProDrive, which is a UK based company, which some of your listeners will know about, like they ran the Subaru World Rally team for many years, um, mm-hmm. and Aston Martin at Le Mans, they owned, back then they owned the local Ford touring car team, um, and they just invested quite heavily They'd bought our engineers from England, like XF1 engineers. They'd bought an autoclave. Um, and, and, yeah, they were looking for people to both do, like, composite fabrication and also, like, move into design. So that my first job was basically just to um, make carbon fiber parts, um, which was really cool. So I worked with um, a woman called Saskia, who, a Swiss woman who had built F1 cars at, Sauber in Switzerland and then at Williams and like her her skills were just absolutely ridiculous in terms of um laying down carbon fiber so that was um yeah it would have been handy to know her a few years earlier when I was trying to make <laughs> the first carbon tub um but yeah that, that was a really that was a really cool thing to learn from her and then someone else there was an engineer who had worked in Williams designing the chassis and the wing elements and things. So kind of ended up working in the design office there, designing parts. Um, and then also traveling with a team doing kind of like, um, analysis work, um, working with the drivers and, um, yeah, kind of, I got my racing fixed through that, I suppose, rather than driving myself, um, being part of a team. And so mm-hmm. that was, yeah, I did that for a, a few years. Um, and then kind of I was pretty unhealthy at that point. Like I'd kind of stopped riding bikes as a teenager and then like university is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And then someone else at the race team and a really good mate of mine that I went to uni with raced mountain bikes as a kid and still rode. And then like I just I still remember that it was very close to where we live now. He took um, myself and a, and a mate for a mountain bike ride on a couple of his old bikes and I was just like <laughs> I was just so taken aback by that that 
I got a mountain bike very soon after that. <laughs> um, and that's kind of snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, <clears throat> what what year roughly was that that you were getting really into bikes? That was in 2005, so yeah, 15 years ago. Okay. So, you start as an adult for the first time really getting into bikes seriously. Yep. And so, these were maybe right before the real 2.9er boom? Yeah, this was definitely, um, yeah, before that happened, yeah. the old 26-inch. Yeah, um, I ended up doing quite a bit of XC racing, um, both on single speed and and geared bikes. Like in like the teams, twenty four hour racing was pretty big here in Australia back then. So a lot of that, um, yeah. So just just rode a lot really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up, I kind of Melbourne's a pretty bloody expensive place to live, and working in motorsport wasn't overly um, profitable. <laughs> It's a passion job, so <laughs> got a job in automotive doing um, for Bosch doing uh, control system development, so doing test driving and calibrating stability control, um, which was a yeah, that was a pretty fun job. So did that for a while, and then is that like like automation component or like uh, like control? Not automation, like like con- like what what exactly? I'm just curious what the nature of that was. So it's the so it's basically a PID controller that, um, what's it's a, hyd- a hydraulic pump that is able to send pressure to each brake on the car individually and also interface with the engine, um, and it's uh, it's basically to stop cars from crashing. Whoa. Um, so that, yeah, that developed out of ABS, which was about making cars brake on different new surfaces mm-hmm. and still steer while braking. Um, so that was. That's cool. Like really heavily involved in like in motor, in the motorsport element. Like we did a lot of um, a lot of testing. So we um, like mounted chassis on huge test rigs to measure like torsional stiffness of the whole chassis, and then what the change was once you introduce the suspension, and then kind of changing roll cage design to change the stiffness, and then testing that. And like I, the thing I loved, and it's sort of why. Definitely floated on to what I'm doing with bikes now, but I just love that kind of continual evolution and just constant push to improve stuff. Yeah, that was yeah, that was that was really good fun, and certainly what drives me now. Um, yeah, and and maybe doing it in a way that's kind of scientific too. That you know, you're you're. <clears throat> I like to think about the you know the scientific method actually, where you make a hypothesis like I think maybe this will be better, and then yeah. And then you test it, and then maybe it's yeah. not. So you have to make another hypothesis, and then eventually <laughs> yeah. you get closer to something that's actually you would consider theory. Like I think that yeah. this generally is good, but you don't yeah. know that until you you test a bunch of things. And yeah. uh, like like weight distribution in a race car makes a huge yeah. difference to how the, how the thing behaves. So like yeah, quite early on in designing bikes, like physically. Like sat on the bike, stood on the bike, measured the weight distribution, and correlated that to a spreadsheet, and then now we use that. So I take the fit data from doing the fit, and then based on what the bike is going to be, tuning the front and rear center to kind of suit that particular rider, how much they weigh, where they are on the bike. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely yeah, yeah. That, that's just how I'd like to work, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> so the uh, yeah, so the, very cool. yeah, and yeah, ended up doing. Yeah, working in automotive for quite some time, which was maybe not overly, yeah, not relevant to bike design, but pretty important in terms of being able to afford to start the business later on. Not that I knew I was going to do that, but like it turned out to be quite an important element. Um, and also, we, yeah, if, if that didn't happen, then I wouldn't have ended up living in the UK, which is where I first started building bikes. So it's kind of, um, like I said earlier, like there's always some little thing that happens that changes what you're doing forever, yeah. which is kind of cool to think about. So you're saying the first bikes you made were fillet braced steel, and you did those in the UK. Um, did you take yeah. the bicycle academies course then? Yeah. So I was um, my partner Louise and I moved to the UK um, to live. Like we quit our jobs here, um, went over there to yeah, basically have have some fun and, and travel around. We both we both ended up working at Jaguar Land Rover, mm-hmm. 
um, in the UK. Um, I was still doing the similar stuff to what I was doing at Bosch, so um, that test driving and um, calibrating control systems. Um, but basically, we just tried to travel as much as possible. Like, we'd leave work on a Friday afternoon, and like once we drove to Belgium to watch the World Cup um, <laughs> cycle cross race. Um, went to the tour a heap of times, uh, went and rode bikes in the French Alps. So I kind of wow. just, yeah, I suppose, made the most of living in Europe. And that was when I went to an early Bristol. So Bespoke Bristol was the big handmade show in Europe. Um, we mm -hmm. went to an early one of them. And just out of interest, like I kind of saw it advertised somewhere and it was like, it was a bit of a... It's cliche to say light bulb moment, but like it was a bit of a kick up the ass to go like you could be actually making stuff, yeah. <laughs> like rather than programming uh, control systems. Like, um, <clears throat> well, that's a th so, yeah. that's a theme that I hear time and again from people who, because <clears throat> I mean I've considered going back to school to be a mechanical engineer, and um, that's something that I hear all the time from people is that you know what it. The, the curriculum that you take and what it is you're learning sounds like it would really speak to that itch that people who love making and who love, you know, analyzing and, and, you know, doing better and all these things that you're talking about, you would think that like the career path of mechanical engineer would be a great fit. And what I hear from people time and again about that is that many of the jobs that you have an opportunity to get are a lot of sitting at a desk or it's designing a system, but you're not actually building it. It's not very hands-on. And so a lot of people, you know, in the machining world and in the bike world and beyond, I, I, it's this theme that I hear time and again that people say, <clears throat> you know, if you really want to use your hands and do something, you, you kind of have to choose that, right? Like that's sort of, is, does that jive yeah. with your experience? Yeah, it does a little bit. Like I, I, don't, I don't regret all the engineering work that I've done. I think it was, yeah, I'm buffed. They've been incredibly lucky to do some things that I've done, but it's prof it's funny. Like some sometimes it's the first jobs out of study that are probably the most relevant to, <laughs> um, like that core itch of yeah making stuff and designing stuff. But um, and then you get further away from that, and I don't know our, our current world encourages us, encourages us all to progress through career paths and become more senior, and then you just get yeah more disconnected from that original yeah, i see yeah yeah like maybe like being that original being a product yeah. of like a project manager or having some more responsibility yeah. at a company maybe tends to put you more hands off yeah definitely gotcha. um and that's yeah that's where i kind of like i still got to do like um yeah like my job at jaguar land Rover was like pretty much the dream job as a kid like i got to drive test car test cars around all around europe and wow um like I've got my Nürburgring test license. So I've done like four laps of the Nürburgring. But then I, got, I got, almost got bored of it. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's still, I feel very lucky to do it. But um, so li yeah, living over there was pretty crucial to to getting started in bikes. Yeah, it meant being able to go to Bristol and see what people were doing. Um, I remember seeing some, the bikes that Ricky Feather um, was making. I was kind of really taken aback by. Yeah this combination of like traditional techniques but then also like such a beautiful modern aesthetic like it was, yeah his yeah, bikes that, are that really, was really sharp. yeah that was um and it, it's been cool to go back and um and actually exhibit that show later on but like that was pretty important and then yeah the bicycle academy spent i did one of their longer courses originally and i wanted to do something a little bit I wanted to build a 29er plus mountain bike. And I remember Andrew calling me after I'd emailed saying, this is the bike I want to build. And he was like, you could tell he was trying to kind of talk me out of doing something like, <laughs> <laughs> like let's just build something a little bit simpler. I'm like, no, this is what we're doing. Um, and that, I mean, that was really interesting to kind of go through like a 29er plus mountain bike with relatively short chain stays. Um, there's design challenges around that that you probably shouldn't do as a first bike, but mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that, you know, you had, I think a lot of people love cycling and they like, you know, working on bikes or they're mechanically inclined when they get into frame building, but they don't have 
I think a lot of folks who get into frame building wouldn't have the body of experience that you had um, when they first entered it. But, you know, I'm sure you had a lot to learn yet when you were getting started. Like, did you have a lot of experience with TIG welding or brazing or, you know, machining? I, I know you had some experience with some of these things. What was it like, you know, when you did take that first class? Was it really challenging or, or was it something where the hard part was the bicycle specific stuff? No, it was all challenging. Like, it was all, um, like, I'd welded and brazed in school. Like, my dad did a lot of TIG welding, but I never I never got to use a TIG welder. That gotcha. was maybe one step too far in yeah. OH&S. But um, got to see see him doing – he did a lot of aluminium welding back then, um, but never actually got to TIG weld myself. Um, so that was definitely um, – incredibly valuable time to spend there i think one of the i'm not sure about the schools in america like i've heard a little bit now after listening to your podcast but one of the things i really valued about the boss academy was that the the people that came in to teach were running their own businesses Mm -hmm. um and they were from pretty um varied backgrounds so i I spent my time with ted james um who did a lot of bmx bikes and yeah like street street bikes and stuff is really interesting character so that was um that was cool and then i went so yeah i built built the bike and i wasn't i just wanted to build a bike then it wasn't about creating a business Mm -hmm. um and then while we're still living because we knew we were going to come back to australia so i went back and rented their workshop and built another couple of bikes uh one a road bike from a mate here in melbourne who still got it um, and a mountain bike for a, a guy in the UK. Um, so, yeah, built another yeah, two and then um, we moved back to Australia um, and then slowly set up a workshop here, Built, started building more prototypes here and testing. And So what year would that have been when you first took that class? And Five, five years ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah well, you. I mean, you're just <laughs> – you're, the, the speed at which you're um, – uh, developing your your mastery is is uh, is incredible. I didn't know exactly when you took that class or when you started making bikes, but um, yeah, the work you do is is just remarkably sharp and really really I can't say enough good things about it. So to know that you only took that class five years ago, I think uh, speaks a lot probably to how driven you are, but also you know the background that you had going into it must really have helped. Uh, you know, like I see what you're doing with three D printing your dropouts and the CAD work and the design work. You know, CAD has I think a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of elements that I'm sure that background that you had has really helped you get up to speed more quickly. Yeah, I think definitely the, yeah, that that's been a very important element. Like, yeah, I've obviously been using CAD since kind of second year at university, so, so 17, 18 years ago or something. Yeah, and then worked as an actual CAD designer in motorsport. We were just constantly kind of iterating designs and trying different stuff. Um, yeah, so that, that's been pretty important, but I hadn't, I hadn't done any CAD design for maybe eight years before getting back into this and all the software stuff that I'd learned back then, they're either too expensive to own. Um, and I wanted to do it, do it properly. So I ended up with fusion 360 because of the, the license model they had seemed Mm -hmm. quite attractive. Yeah, well, we were just talking um, about that is, yeah. last yeah. last week on this show, but yeah, it's like it's changing the whole the industry for people who make stuff and machine things and design stuff that you know that you have a company like Autodesk that offers this software basically for free until you really make money with it, yeah. and uh, there's that, and then there's a bunch of other things that have changed. You know, the 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 information is freely available through you know YouTube and a lot of places if you want to learn this skill or that skill, but um, yeah, everything is just so it, we're living in such a different time now. Yeah, like when I went to uni, there was certainly no 3D printing going on or being yeah. taught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's massively different. So, I mean, even five years ago when you were getting started, um, to get you know to find companies that would 3D print titanium or stainless parts yeah. for you, like I built, yeah, so the first the first bike I built with 3D printed chainstay yoke and dropout was three years ago mm-hmm. um which was a steel kind of all mountain hardtail um and it was kind of there was just nothing online about 
how to TIG weld it. Like I remember speaking to some like reps from printing companies and things like any advice on kind of filler rod or <laughs> like anything. And there's just nothing. It's like I don't not sure if anyone's tried to do this. Yeah. Um, so just like I remember like I built this bike up um, and the first rider took it to like a little local downhill track and like slightly white knuckled the first this before I had testing rigs and stuff with the people I share with here in Melbourne but yeah slightly white knuckled ride down the first kind of rock gardens but um, <laughs> but that, that bike's still in one piece a mate in Canberra bought it off me um, a year or so after that <laughs> once I built myself some more but um yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. It's a it's a new frontier, and so I think the way that I entered bike frame building, and a lot of people do, is I left the engineering up to the people who came before me. They, you know, I I would hear sort of the the quote rule of thumb about this and that. You know, these things work for this, these things work for that, and you just kind of play it safe by following the recipe that other people suggest, and then over time you get a larger body of experience and you understand how things kind of feel and you get a little more comfortable deviating from, from that. But that's, um, it's a very like reactive and conservative approach. Right. And so you're not really blazing new, which is sensible. Like that's kind of, yeah, certainly. Even, even though I'm using the 3d printing, I'm still definitely like, that's still definitely driving a lot of decisions I make about, um, yeah, like and it, before you get into doing any simulation or real world testing, you're still using those kind of first principles. Um, uh, kind of this is why bikes don't break. Kind of theories, um, yeah. which um, are, are pretty. There's a, there's a builder here in Australia, Ewan Gelly, who's always kind of making points about why butter tubing exists, for example, and it's not about saving weight; it's about distributing stress away from the welded join, which is the area likely to mm-hmm. to break so um things like that you kind of like that constant um like smooth transitions between joins and even distribution of stress through structures all that kind of stuff like you kind of that, that's what all this rule of thumb stuff is yeah. kind of um a lot of it's built around and kind of using that to design complicated well what seemingly complicated parts is um definitely what happens yeah at least like initially when you're kind of deciding what the shape is going to be or and it actually like the 3d printing allows you to kind of make do that even more like the way you kind of um yeah the way you're able to kind of really smoothly transition between tubes to to nodes and things like that's kind of um pretty cool yeah, so so on your timeline with getting established with frame building and stuff, you know, you're in the UK, you take this class, you decide to move back to Australia, and um, and at some point you decide that you want to. Was it like a slow transition from you know building for the sake of building for your own sort of hobby and, and education, or you know, like what, what was the turning point where you decided that you wanted to take it in more of a business oriented direction? Yeah, it was. Like after the first few bikes I built for myself here in Australia, and um, like people responded pretty well to, to yeah, to what they look like um, from an aesthetic point of view, which is obviously pretty important for growing a business around something that's quite driven through that aspect. But um, it was the first time someone I didn't know <laughs> approached me. Um, a guy called Ian was one of the first customers that came from outside of. Um, like that kind of local group who'd bought frames from me. Um, that was kind of interesting point. I think we kind of go like, oh, they, like there's something, there's something in this. There's something in the the aesthetic and the story that people uh, are into. So um, I just kept kind of, again, like I've been in a very lucky position where I can kind of um, just slowly let. The, um, the business grow mm. so I haven't had to kind of I've got a very supportive partner who if it wasn't for her then the business would not be what it is right now that's, that's a really important point to make like I'm yeah just pretty lucky to have her have her support through this 
mm-hmm. um, and allow me to kind of uh, naturally grow the business. So like buying tools as we go along and not, um, yeah, like I didn't have to buy a heap of stuff at the start on a loan and then try and make it work straight away. Like I've been able to let it uh, sort of, yeah, grow organically even if it seems fast from the outside um <laughs> yeah i mean i would I, I would say the pace that that i see what you're doing is is very inspiring but um you know you had yeah you had a lot of years of of uh doing other other things that i'm sure help inform your uh you know your journey yeah yeah um i wanted to talk some about you know the one of the things that I think is especially remarkable about your work is that, uh, you know, you have a lot of, um, you know, the dropouts and things are like 3d printed and centered together, uh, you know, of the material of the, of the rest of the frame, titanium or stainless, I I assume for all of those. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, there's a couple things that I'm interested in. Like, first of all, like, when did you, uh, have the idea or when did you decide that you wanted to try that process? Um, so initially, it was early on. I wanted to, um, I wanted to do reinforced um, internal routing bosses, but I didn't want to reinforce them from the outside. So I wanted to have like an internal flange that was then like pushed in from the back and then sealed into the tube to form a, a reinforcement in one kind of hit. Um, and I remember I approached. Um, so what is now my co like I co-located with a few different bike businesses, but you would you potentially would have heard of Bastion Cycles. We uh-huh. do the 3D printed titanium lugs with carbon tubes. So Whoa. one of the guys, one of the guys who started that, James, I knew from um, university days. Um, so I just kind of yeah, dropped him a line and we ended up going for a ride. I got some of these bosses printed, and I think it was when I first asked like for the data sheet for the material properties and like, is this real? Like, is this, is this, is it really this strong and have this elongation <laughs> at break like that? This is the same as the tubing that everyone <laughs> uses essentially. Like we can make, as long as you can weld it easily, like you can make structural parts out of this. So I think it was um, at that point and also not having, not being a machinist by trade and not having a huge, machine shop like it's really hard for us to buy secondhand machines here in australia i get really envious of both americans and english and europeans just oh we just picked up this secondhand bridge port for whatever <laughs> yeah no that's been my <laughs> like, experience this does like, not happen here in australia <laughs> yeah um so the, the ability to to make a dropout that has the post mounts built into it um and then a relatively simple operation to post machine the axle mating face referencing the brake mounts everything's flat when you build the frame so i saw it as an opportunity to kind of in some ways simplify the manufacturing process but also create like a really robust attractive design so it's kind of um and seeing the seeing the original data sheet of um of that material and that was a that's 15.5 ph stainless um which is what the yeah, so all my steel bikes. That's the the prop the steel that's used, um, and it's got like 16 percent elongation of brake, so it's quite quite ductile, um, and it welds it welds really nicely. Like I think like the um, you're probably going to ask about how how it's made, but like the powder that the stuff is made from is it's essentially welded into the structure. So I, I gather the people that have developed the powder probably put a lot of research into it being melted um so it does actually weld really well wow there was a youtube video well there's a youtube channel i stumbled upon recently this guy dan galbert um is just this old genius of a dude incredibly smart but anyway he was talking about 3d printing and showing all this stuff about the process and for anyone who's interested in 3d printing and centering of the of the material uh dan galbart uh really really super educational and uh cool to see more about that process from him but um yeah it's pretty uh, pretty interesting and um like i just mentioned before how i'm co-located with other businesses so um 
yeah, like here here in Melbourne, quite close to the city, there's there's five of us in one large factory that includes yeah, myself, Bastion Cycles, Fellow Craft, who does all our painting, um, Rider Fit, who does bike fitting, um, and then industrial designer <clears throat> upstairs. So the really cool thing that's happened in the last little while is the guys from Bastion actually installed their own Renishaw titanium printer. So that's been there for a bit over wow. a year. Um, so all, all my titanium bikes, they're printed, all the parts are printed, like literally five meters from where I do the welding. Um, That's and, and seeing, seeing close up their, the development and the learning they've gone through <clears throat> to, to produce parts has been pretty valuable. Like that's kind of, um, yeah, count myself pretty lucky to be able to witness that. Yeah, um, for sure. Kind of firsthand because it's certainly not a plug and play process. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, that's always the the CNC machinist sort of joke or whatever <laughs> is that you just, you know, you just walk up to the machine and you press the green button and then like stuff comes out, yeah. you know, which yeah. is that's uh, not the case, but <laughs> Yeah. Um yeah, I would imagine even with 3D printing which seems you know, I know like you can buy like a plastics 3D printer for, you know, $200 and and it's pretty straightforward and it'll make stuff for you. But when you, mm. when you want to use uh, the more cutting edge of it with more exotic materials and then you're actually sintering it like that, that's a, I would imagine there's a lot more of a, a learning curve that goes into making good stuff come out of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you're yeah, dealing with heat. Like it's essentially welding the powder together on each layer. So yeah, you're dealing with um, parts that want to move around and, change during during that process so um yeah, orientation on the plate the shape of the part how you, yeah how you how it's supported there's all these kind of um things that they've been through on, on the stuff they do and then i've been through with them on the things that i do so it's kind of um that's that's been a really interesting um yeah um like, what yeah for an engineer it's pretty cool to, to yeah. see it up close Certainly. I wanted to ask you when, when you go to design those, are those, you know, like, like, uh, let's say you went to market Paragon machine works and you said, I have an idea for a dropout. I want them to look like this. Can you make me some, he would make tooling, he'd make a program and he would produce a batch of them and they'd all be identical because the CNC machining process lends itself well to doing things in small batches, but of that batch doing them exactly the same. And we have a 3d yep. printing process. I think that's a little bit because you don't need the fixturing, um, and, and, and the, the blank that you start, you know, like with, um, it's, CNC machining is subtractive, so you need blanks that all start kind of the same size. But with 3D printing anyway, it's a process that you could have uh, a bunch of different 3D models that were different. And the machine could, I think, just about as easily print all of them, uh, even though they were different. So I guess my question is, when, when you have your components made for your bikes, are they all different to meet the the 3D model that you make of the bikes? Or uh, are the bikes similar enough that you can use the same dropout between them? Uh, so at at the moment, the majority of the parts are all unique to e wow. each frame. Um, so I've got a a pretty robust parametric model for each model that I have. So I've got probably too many models, but I've got um, yeah, quite a few different bikes that I make. So I make yeah, mountain bikes, gravel bikes, road bikes, at all now in both in steel and titanium, which might shift more towards titanium in a not too distant future. But so each yeah, basically I. Um, take the fit data that we've done the fit with. I do quite a lot of fits myself, so you kind of work with the customer, go through the geometry, how, this is how we want the bike to be, take some key variables from that. So I still use BikeCAD for that element because it's just so handy for um, the fit element yeah. and, and agreeing the geometry and the fit with the client. Mm -hmm. um, so then I just take, take some pretty simple dimensions from that, plug them into a design table in Fusion, um, and then, yeah, the majority of the model um, changes shape to suit that quite easily. Yeah. Um, gen generally, like Fusion's a little bit flaky around filleting, so like you'll potentially some little fillets internally. Like particularly, like with with 3D printing, there's a really high incentive to to spend a lot of time refining the design because it's charged per gram. So um, you, yeah, you need to be efficient with the design process. 
Mm-hmm. So there are all the parts are kind of shelled, and then there's all these internal fillets to yeah, remove any stress raises and stuff. So it doesn't take yeah, it, like with a more refined model. So um, once you've been through that process a few times with a particular model, it gets pretty robust, and you can kind of yeah, change it and generate the the files for printing pretty quickly. Yeah, and so for now, any- there's also some features where I put in the customer's initials and the frame serial number stuff. So it's kind of whoa, yeah, making the most of that's so cool. Um, I never yeah. even thought of that. Yeah. Um, so so for folks listening who don't know, uh, one of the cool things about Fusion 360 and and most robust CAD software that well, it's, when it's parametric, uh, it means you know basically that you can enter parameters, and so you type in you name a parameter and you give it a value. And then later when you're drawing your thing in three dimensional space, rather than typing in a dimension like 500 millimeters, you can name that parameter and it will reference your parameters table. And so you could build a bike from a parameters table. You could put in your, you know, your head tube angle and your C tube angle and your bottom bracket drop. And you could put in these bike centric parameters ahead of time. You could draw up the 3d model based on those. And then later, if you wanted to adjust the model that the, the representation that you saw on the screen, you could just change the named parameters and then it would, if you did everything right, it would update the model. And so it's a really powerful way if you're going to use something like BikeCAD is really easy and user-friendly. You can just kind of walk into it and you can kind of get to work right away. There's not much of a learning curve, but if you're going to use, you know, 2D or 3D CAD software, this is a really good workflow for that to use the, to harness the, the parametric nature of it. Yeah, and generally Fusion's pretty good at that. So, um, yeah, as long as you're, the computer you're using is kind of powerful enough to deal with it, then, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so each one's, yeah, generally, like all the dropouts are unique um, just because of the, the way that I've designed it to have kind of straight cut joins between. So I've mm-hmm. moved the weld join away from the node which has some benefits in manufacturing also in moving away from the highly stressed uh, junctions. Um, and then I've got to the road bike that I've, disc road bike that I make, that probably half my volume is the one with the carbon seat tube and it has a printed lug at the join from the top tube to the seat stays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the carbon tube is bonded in. So that lug is unique because it yeah, to get the, flow from the top tube into the stays the right for each size bike yeah so that's definitely unique there's some parts that are like all the internal cable guide routing like little bosses and stuff they're obviously like once you design one you can then just order um enough of them the seat post topper on the carbon bike uses then the newer envy internals but it's yeah i've just got a few different offset versions of it so you can kind of just like if I know I've got some 15 mil setback ones coming up, I can just order a couple. They've already been printed. They've already figured out. We've already figured out which way to orient them on the plate when they're printed, mm-hmm. so it becomes quite easy. Like there is some extra work involved in reprint, in not doing a reprint of the same part because you've got to bring it in as a STL file, which is the file that we export from CAD for creating 3D printed parts. So it has to be bought into their software. Um, they do the internal latticing at that point. So um, all the 3D printed parts have a internal honeycomb structure that both helps the printing process or helps support the walls during um, the manufacturing process, but also has some benefits in terms of um, uh, stiffness and supporting shapes that aren't perfectly round. Um so that kind of happens, if that's happening each time, then there is some extra labor in, involved with that. I see. Um, then if you just, yeah, like if you did it like machining and just ordered 20 of the same thing, that would definitely be slightly cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're not really making the most of the yeah. process for, for me. That um, Like I have, yeah, I've like swung between different ideas about, like when I sort of just, launching the titanium version of my road bikes and I've kind of I almost went down the path of having some set angle dropouts and things but then um, I've just spent more time making the model better so it's easier to create the each file and the kind of ordering <laughs> I don't need to keep 
I don't need to keep 10 sets of dropouts to hand. I just order, like I'm just signing off a few frames this week. So once they're signed off, create the files and you order them. It's quite a lean manufacturing process, I suppose. Yeah. Like you kind of, um, the bike's signed off, the customer's paid their manufacturing deposit, you order, order the dropouts at that point um, rather than having to invest like kind of 10 grand on making yeah. a huge bunch. So Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I definitely, you know, if you have a bunch of money tied up in materials or a bunch of time tied up in half finished work, then, uh, you can't really do anything with that until it's done. So, and any time mm. that you can manufacture in smaller batches that doesn't make you terribly inefficient, uh, that's worth considering. And yeah, um, I know we're getting toward the end of the time that we have budgeted for this. So I'll wrap it up here. I wanted to ask you, um, just like what it's like in Australia as a frame builder, you know, I know in the United States, there's, there's a lot of people who build bike frames and there's some trade shows and there's a fair amount of suppliers, you know, Paragon Machine Works and Bike Fab Supply and Nova and these different ones. And so, uh, you know, like what is your experience of it in Australia? I know you mentioned there's at least a, a couple builders there. Um, does it feel like it's, it's a- really active or is it, is it endlessly frustrating trying to source components or what's, what's it like? That's, it's a really sort of strong close-knit community here in australia it's kind of there's probably like 20 to 30 people building frames in australia and maybe um i think there's three of us doing titanium frames here in australia um and then a bunch of there's quite a few other people doing kind of tig welded steel stuff um there's obviously the guys that i share the space with doing the print 3d printed carbon stuff there's a lot of quite well respected lugged manufacturing going on here in australia mm-hmm. we have a really healthy um handmade show which is in kind of may this year so mm-hmm. that's in its third third year which people have traveled from overseas for which is pretty cool um i think it's been it's been uh really nice that it's kind of been open to someone new coming in like i suppose some of the, <clears throat> the approaches i've been taking could upset some people but <laughs> i think uh, it's been really heartwarming to see how yeah, open and willing to help everyone is so <clears throat> like you've, you've most likely heard of bomb cycles uh-huh. down yep. in geelong so darren's been like super helpful like advice so we we're talking earlier about tig welding so being able to just call him up and ask about welding titanium is pretty pretty cool uh, to be able to do and like whenever I go down there it's usually like you, you want to stop in for 20 minutes and just grab something or something we end up there for four hours talking about all sorts <laughs> of stuff um so and then there's Dazza from Llewellyn up in Queensland who's he's been like I remember going to see him quite early on when I was building frames and just we didn't talk about bikes or bike design at all um it was all about kind of the business element of it and the bike industry and trade shows and things like that. And that was like for him and his partner to kind of open their doors and let someone, some stranger from Melbourne in is pretty cool. And then I've, yeah, I think it's a, yeah, a lot of us are exporting, like probably half of my sales are export. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty strong. The Australian product is seen in a very positive light in Southeast Asia. So we have all of us sell quite a few frames into that region. Mm-hmm. selling some frames into where you are now as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You came to the uh, the, the Chris King open house uh, a little while uh, ago, the en- right? Oh, it was uh, I didn't make it to that one. I went to the Envy one. Envy. Yeah. Okay, was, yeah, I got those mixed that up. Was, that was really cool. Like I was, um, I'd already traveled to Bristol like not long before that for the show mm-hmm. and to Singapore to do some stuff there. So it was kind of pretty last-minute <laughs> decision to go. But um, that was that was awesome so to meet people that you kind of message and kind of know from online i suppose to actually ride with them and have a beer with them is kind of makes the the industry feel a bit smaller which yeah. is kind of nice yeah certainly and then you've got those people to kind of um yeah like adam sky and i will message every so often about design stuff or bike stuff and to actually then yeah get to ride with people like that and then like curtis inglis and cam falconer <laughs> yeah like they were just yeah hilarious dudes that just love riding bikes and yeah it's pretty sweet yeah i might um i'm just deciding whether i 
do it again this year or not. But uh... yeah, certainly. Well, I, uh, if I'm there, I hope to see you there. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. One last thing: uh, Do you have any other advice that you'd want to give to other frame builders, other than what you were saying about you know start at a reasonable place that's uh, you know not totally overwhelming? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's for me that I think that was incredibly important. I remember Dazza telling me like make sure you can live off the smell of an oily rag for a couple of years. <laughs> That's pretty like you need to lower your expectations if yeah, in, in terms of what else you can do, both time wise and financially. Um, mm. I think not like I, I made the first like fifteen, twenty bikes without a milling machine. So just all like hand mitered mm-hmm. and didn't like at that point where you're not trying to hit volume targets, it doesn't really you know, for me it didn't really matter. Like can still build a really shit yeah. hot frame like you're not the milling machine's not really making the frame any better it's just improving your kind of manufacturing process uh, yeah in terms of speed of production rather than making the frames any better yeah certainly so that's probably like yeah not trying to spend not thinking that you need to spend crazy amounts of money on tooling and stuff to 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 get started that's pretty important i think it was for me invaluable like I've come from outside the bike industry, so it kind of felt pretty hard or daunting to kind of like everyone like you read reading online's a bit of a dangerous thing to do, but like if you read online, people say, "Oh, you just go and get work experience with someone." It's like, apart from the fact it's quite hard to find someone that's willing to do that, and now being in that position where people ask me, it's kind of like you're running a pretty tight business. It's pretty hard to afford half your time to then work with someone else that's trying to learn. But if you can find someone anyway um so yeah. I, th- I think going to spend time at a school environment is yeah i mean yeah, that's my advice to anyone that mm-hmm. approaches me that wants to ask about how to yeah well and something that i keep hearing from you about your experience that sounds really nice is that you you happen to be in a i mean with all your years in motorsports and stuff you met a lot of people that you could learn from but now you're situated locally around a lot of other talented people in and around bikes and and these other technical processes like you know the 3d printing and centering and stuff so um you know versus my experience of like being in the relative middle of nowhere (laughs) and not having anyone around that i can learn from in person um you know, I, and I think about where I'll move my shop next. And that's a big consideration for me. If you can be in the same city or the same region as like other people who do things that you might like to learn from, even if you can't see them all the time or, you know, just watch them work every hour of every day to put yourself around more of that. I think, you know, like, I, I yeah, it's really, I, yeah, yeah. I remember reading about Taiwan and why Taiwan is so successful as a manufacturing hub. And that's like one of the reasons why is everything is located in one area so you can kind of yeah um like if i want to get a like an internal bladder made for my composite tooling like there's a shop just around the corner next to the lunch place that makes them yeah whereas if i if i want to do that here you got to kind of find some company in the states or what i do you know make it yourself but um so I, I think definitely like we've benefited from here in melbourne having a few businesses in the same space like i'll like particularly having um steve a painter in the same building is kind of invaluable for trying to produce the best bikes we possibly can in terms of finish. Like it's, yeah, yeah it just means we can work, work together and he happens to be a good bloke as well and loves riding. So it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool to be co-located. So I think um, if you want to move your shop to Melbourne, we can, we can clear up some space. You can put your CNC in the corner. And... <laughs> so, you know, I, I keep talking about moving to California, which I think <laughs> yeah. would, um, with my new milling you machine. You going to Australia. Yeah, well, no, my new milling machine is like 14,000 pounds. And so if I wanted to move <laughs> that to California, I think it would cost me like 10 or 15 grand. Um, yeah. But if I wanted to move it, you know, maybe to Australia, you know, you get that thing on a boat. I've heard that freight is actually cheaper than you would think. Uh, it's just yeah. slow, so you know. Yeah. There we go. There you go. <laughs> we got some good trails, pretty much quite right next to the workshop. So. Oh yeah. man, I'm sold. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> okay, last question. Um, is it true that the um, the Australians' favorite word is heaps? <laughs> heaps good. <laughs> um, yeah. Or oh, yeah, nah. Yeah, no, it's pretty popular. 
Yeah, no. It's not really one word though, which sort of blends into one word. Uh huh. Okay. And I've it, been. I, I was. I was heckled by people at work to try and introduce as much Australiana as possible, but I, I think I've kind of failed a little bit in that. But okay, um, here's one more. How many bird attacks have come upon you in the last month? <laughs> I know you guys are known for your hostile birds. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a bird called the magpie, which is like slightly <laughs> smaller than a raven. But they only attack us during their breeding season, which is not for another little while. So it's been like in summer, we just got to watch out for snakes. But um, <laughs> like I went for a mountain bike ride this morning. You kind of, it's pretty warm here at the moment by the main river. It's, yeah, you just kind of know that any any given ride, you might come across a tiger snake, which is like one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. But, um, oh, my God. Yeah, I'd rather deal with that than bears or other things so um yeah all right okay well i'm not going to take any more of your time uh go enjoy lunch here it's evening time so i'm just going to continue enjoying a beer and um uh thanks so much for being on the podcast really enjoyed talking to you your work is super inspiring to me i can't wait to see what you do next cheers thanks joe yeah see ya see you man bye